Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. One of the most entertaining battles in the banking industry is around where's the capital of finance? Is it New York, Hong Kong, the Silicon Valley, London, or another business center? Now the question becomes more interesting. With the quickly developing fintech space in China and the reordering of the relationship between Britain and the European Union, more important than the battle for fintech or banking supremacy is the role government and business community needs to play to encourage ongoing investment in new financial startups and how these same entities can look beyond balance sheets to encourage greater inclusion, sustainability, and finance for the good of people and the community. To discuss the ways that business and government can work together to provide the platform for future investment and growth of both legacy and startup financial service organizations, we are honored today to be joined by William Russell, the Lord Mayor of the City of London. As holder of the post that dates back to the 12th century, the Lord Mayor is the 692nd person to hold the title and is also the fifth person in his family to be Lord Mayor of London. Hello, we are really honored to have the chance to speak with Lord Mayor William Russell today around how the City of London and the entire region is working to stimulate growth in the financial services sector. As I understand, William, part of your one-year tenure in the elected role is to visit close to two dozen countries over a very compressed time period to generate funding, but also to provide support for fintech organizations worldwide. Where have you visited already, and how's the reception been for your efforts? So, just so you know, I'm the 692nd Lord Mayor of the City of London, and the mayoralty dates back to 1189. So, there have been... uh, the mayoralty is obviously over 800 years old, and the most famous Lord Mayor we've had, who was Lord Mayor four times, was someone called Dick Whittington, who is a famous Lord Mayor back in the 14th century. But now the Lord Mayor's role is very much ambassador of financial and professional services for the whole of the UK, which employs 2.3 million people. And my particular theme this year is global UK trade, innovation, and culture. And under the innovation pillar, we have fintech. And so far, one of the first trips I did in December was uh, to go to San Francisco, and I visited about 15 VCs uh, in San Francisco and took a a fintech delegation from the UK, and we had some very successful meetings, uh, really to establish a relationship with a lot of the investors in the Bay Area, because they have been looking at the fintech space for investments. And uh, some of them already had either an office open or were looking to it. And funny enough, since that trip, Sequoia have announced, or, or not announced, but well, I think they have not announced that they're looking to open an office here in London as well. And we've had some big financings, Revolut being one of the big ones, five and a half billion pounds. And I think that was led by a US VC as well. So it was a successful trip. Yeah, I think the whole fintech area is continuing to thrive. And London just happens to be uh, the center of fintech at the moment, London and the whole of the UK, actually, because the fintech sector employs 76,500 people in the whole of the UK. So obviously, London is known for the historically significant financial organizations that call your city home. How are the established banking organizations in the UK responding to the challenges presented by the growing 
presence of neobanks like Monzo, N26, Revolut, Starling, Tandem, etc.? So originally, and I was on the board of Innovate Finance, which is the fintech industry body, until I became Lord Mayor. And it would be fair to say about three or four years ago, I think the incumbent banks, the big banks, looked at it and were very concerned and saw them as a big threat and disruptive. But what's happened now is they're collaborating much more. So I'll give you an example. Lloyds Bank owned 10% of a fintech company called Thought Machine, which is helping very much with the legacy systems and using AI to make a Lloyds Bank more efficient. I'm pretty sure that Thought Machine have other bank clients, like I'm pretty sure SEB's one and Standard & Chart is another. So they're adapting to it, but they're also bringing up their own products. Now, that doesn't always work because I'm sure you would have read that some of the Bincomer banks did come out with a small uh, digital bank, and since then some of them have decided that wasn't going to work for them. But I noticed this week that Santander, everyone's waiting to see what they're coming out with. I think it's called PayFX. So they're, they're reacting in two ways. One is collaborative, have their own incubators, see what fintech can do for their business to make them more efficient, but also coming out with their own products. And I don't know what the answer is and whether both avenues are the right thing. But what I do think is that I don't think the incumbent banks are suddenly going to go to zero because of the disruptive nature of fintech. I think that there will be room for lots of new businesses and the incumbent banks, as you know, a lot of are still there in some cases still thrive, but they're very conscious of what's going on around them. Well, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of these organizations, you know, we, we call them startup fintechs, but many of them started over five years ago. And initially, even though a lot of them were purporting the fact that they had a large number of customers and people that had signed up and all that, at the beginning, a lot of the consumer interest was they were the secondary bank because they were testing the mouth, kicking the tires, so to speak. But I think when you give them a five-year lane of takeoff, as they've had, over time, the one issue that was a concern of many people with regard to fintechs, which is trust, that gets resolved over time. And as organizations grow and as they continue to innovate and as they continue to get better at what they're doing, we're already seeing in our research, and I'm sure your research says the same thing, that some consumers have made some of these, we'll call them startups still, their primary financial institutions. So that kind of changes the dynamic of the competitive landscape, but also shows the potential of what can happen in the open banking environment, doesn't it? I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I mean, trust is a very important thing. But also what I do generally think is happening is that a lot of people, and I suppose I'm one of them in a way, have more than one bank account. So I have an HSBC account, but I also have a Revolut account. Now, my 18-year-old daughter has a Lloyd's account, but she now has a Monzo account. I think it's because she likes the pink card that Monzo has. <laughs> yep. But my children have, you know, Revolut. My other son has Monzo. So people are having different, more than one account. And I think that also makes a difference. And But also the model is changing. So we all know that what they're trying to do is come up with more products. And you know that the valuations, and when I was in San Francisco, I met Robin Hood, and, you know, I know the valuation on Robin Hood, which I'm sure you know, which if I remember right is $8.75 billion in the last round. And that's because they have 10 million customers, even though Robin Hood hasn't had a great week this week. But Revolut now have 11 million customers, getting those customers to sign up. And then, as you know, it's what products you put through the customer base that generates the profitability, which is something different with being digital versus you know, well, I can't remember the last time I went into a, a bank branch, but you know what I'm talking about. It's a very different mindset that these new startups have. And, you know, I think that's something. And also, 
We have a big strength in the UK around RegTech uh, as well, yes. which has helped with fintech. And I'm sure in part of this conversation, we can talk about, I met a whole lot of US regulators and the frustrating thing I find, having, by the way, worked for First Boston and Merrill Lynch and having lived in America, is that America has all this tech but when it comes to the fintech bit, America seems to be behind. It's so frustrating. You don't even have chip and pin in America. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's always funny when, when an organization or a, a trade association says they want me to come and talk about the payments industry. And I, I laugh and I go, I'm from the U.S. You, you do realize that we are probably the slowest. In, and not just in the payment space, but, you know, some recent research came out that said that even the take-up rate for fintech firms in North America, Canada, and the U.S. is way below other areas uh, of the world. Obviously, China, the Far East is very engaged, and we're starting to see a lot of movement in India and the Eastern European countries. But as you look at that and you look at the fact that much of the growth of fintech firms in the U.K. was stimulated by regulatory changes and provided a path for open banking – how do you think government and business should address the challenge of different regulations in different regions and the potential for globalization of these banking entities? Well, I mean, if I look at America, my honest, and, and by the way, it was refreshing that we had, I think, 27 U.S. regulators over here last week, and they were all talking to each other and saying, you know, we're trying to come up with one regulation around payment processing, but that's only 27 out of you know, 50. So you need to get all 50 regulators, in my view, around the table and coming up with one solid agreement for the whole of America. Otherwise, it's going to be very frustrating. And that's one of the strengths that we've had here in the UK. And why to be if you said to me, William, what is the one single reason why the UK is one of the fintech centers of the world, if not the fintech center is because of our regulations. So the FCA have been in a position to not only regulate, but they look at competition. So what fintech has done, and, and by the way, I'm not saying we're absolutely right about everything because we've had our fair share of hiccups with some fintech companies that haven't done very well and, 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 and you know, the odd fraud bit, piece of fraud as well. But on the whole, what's happened is you've had fintech and regulation and the FCA also, as I said, has a competitive mandate. And suddenly the open banking and what you, you and I have just been talking about is wonderful for the consumer. You know, we have the incumbent banks. And before that, I used to do my foreign exchange. And you and I know that I was paying far too much. But now I have, whether it is Monzo, Revolution, and I pay at spot rate. And, you know, I'm saving money. And that's what it's all about, really. And that's why being as competitive as America is, I'm always surprised there's obviously lots of banks in America, but when it comes to the payment processing, particularly some of the FX and, you know, the, the, the whole fintech space, I'm surprised it's not more competitive in America. Well, and, and then we have traditional financial institutions in the U.S. that have blocked out some of the fintech firms from, like, my ability to use TransferWise to transfer funds overseas is blocked by my traditional financial institution under the guise of privacy and fraud. You go, geez, you're obviously making this a more challenging position for me that we have a situation that I'm not even able to use some of the fintechs in the U.S., which is a challenge in and of itself. But um, the good news is that Monzo is coming to America and a lot of it's because of uh, their big backer now is a US VC. And what I did learn in San Francisco is that when they back a company, they help them. I think that's the good news is there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of help from the US VCs when they make some of these big investments. And I think it was a US VC that did the big round recently in Revolut. And they will help Revolut 
you know, move into the U.S., which is inevitably will happen, and it, and it may not happen, you know, across the whole of the U.S., but it's going to happen because market forces are, will make it happen. Yeah, and on that subject, as you mentioned, some of the U.K.-based fintech firms are coming to the U.S. How do you believe established financial institutions in the U.S. should prepare for this eventual onslaught of fintech players, not just from the U.K., but eventually from other countries? Having lived in America and knowing America, you have a lot of banks with branches. And we're shutting branches down in this country as fast as we can, as far as I can see, because no one goes into a bank branch anymore. But I think as it comes through, it's not dissimilar to what's going on in the high street. And I suspect it's not dissimilar in some cases what goes on in the mall. It's like Amazon came along and suddenly no one's, not everyone has to go to the shopping mall anymore. And that's what's happening here in the UK as well. And I think that will happen to America. I think there could be a huge sea change when people realize they don't have to get in the car and go to the local bank like everyone used to. And that, that sea change needs to, it will come on the basis that I was still amazed the number of people, as I think I, I said to you, who were still writing checks for their monthly rent. In this country and in a lot of European countries, check writing is completely alien. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, and when you look at the firms coming over here, what challenges do you think they're going to have in the U.S.? I obviously recognition, but are they going to have the same challenges they had at the very beginning in the U.K. with regard to size, recognition, trust, and scalability? Well, I think the challenge will be, I mean, to be frank, it's, it, the challenge will be around regulation. I think if the regulator... If they're able to get into marketplaces because the regulator is helping them do that, then I'm pretty sure that the market forces will make them succeed. But I think that's their biggest change. I mean, I have heard a number say, well, we aren't looking at the U.S. Because, until the regulation changes. It's either got to come from government or the, or the state regulator. But as I said, the 27 U.S. regulators over here this week, they recognize they need to change in order to make sure that this is allowed to happen. Well, you know, there's gaps in the regulation. We just recently had a fintech buy a bank, and that opens the door. There's certainly been, a, in the last two months, since the beginning of the year, a lot of transactions where organizations have combined, they've partnered, they've um, invested in each other. And I think this is going to push regulators. You know, I, I kid about the fact that in the U.S., the problem with our regulations is that the regulators are basically the oldest and most experienced bankers, which means that they're more stuck in their ways than even the leadership of financial institutions that I'm challenged with daily on getting them to move the needle. They don't come from the tech space. They don't understand the tech space. They know they need it, just like I talk about the financial institutions. The fact that they know they need to do something, the fact that they kind of know what they need to do doesn't mean they move forward. And that is a frustration, obviously, in the U.S. But the consumer is driving the change now. The consumer, as it was in the U.K., and it is worldwide, is driving the fact that consumers want new ways to interact, new ways to have their financial conditions being analyzed and be able to interact and engage with their financial institution. And if the traditional financial institutions don't do it or if the regulators make it difficult, consumers are still going to find the way. I totally agree. And the consumer will do that. And, you know, here's a thought there. Maybe in the trade negotiations, it's something where you know, that may be a chance to talk about streamlining regulation, even though I'm not sure that will be necessarily a priority. There could be other things. But the key point, the consumer ultimately will win. 
and the consumer will recognize or find ways. And I mean, I joke apart, and you've heard this before, but, you know, part of the strength of London is our ecosystem. I can walk to Shoreditch or to one bank to another, whereas uh, having worked on Wall Street, you know, but then you have the tech in Silicon Valley 5,000 miles away. So it is how you bring the ecosystem together so it's working as one. And that's ultimately how you get the success. And it will happen because America is so adaptive and innovative. It will happen. It's just um, it's just taking longer than I think a lot of us would have thought. So we've discussed how the U.S. firms should prepare for the entry of UK fintechs. How do financial institutions in your region prepare for the potential and, and future entry of firms like Chime and even Chase Bank? Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, well, Chase have talked about it. And then I think Robin Hood are opening up here any minute. Well, certainly that was what they said when I was over there, that it hasn't happened yet. It's tough to prepare because, you know, it's more competition. I think, and I'm sure you've seen the success of Marcus, right? Uh, which has been very successful over here from Goldman's. And it looks like, as you say, JP Morgan Chase are looking at doing a similar thing. I think Marcus has got up to 20 billion in their accounts now. And, and, and how that then you get that money and how you can eventually persuade people to, to invest in other products or whatever it is that we're going to do. And I think it's difficult to prepare for that. I think it just, it's, you know, it becomes the survival of the fittest. And uh, I remember very well about three or four years ago, we probably had 85 peer-to-peer lenders. Now, I don't know the exact number, but I can tell you there aren't 85 peer-to-peer lenders anymore. The big peer-to-peer in the peer-to-peer as far as deposit peer-to-peer, Ratesetter and Zopa. Zopa became a bank, Ratesetter hasn't. But to give you an example, you know, as you said early on in the interview, N26 came over and tried to start out as not as a peer-to-peer, as a bank taking on Mongzo and Tandem and Atom and all those other other things. And uh, they recognized that it was going to cost too much. And uh, the market was already pretty entrenched with what we've got. Do you see then N26, you know, they, as you mentioned, they recently announced that they're moving their headquarters from London to Ireland. Is this type of this situation, was it, do you think it was prompted from a, a business perspective or from um, Brexit or? Well, they said Brexit. I think it was more than Brexit because, you know, what's happened is that since the referendum, the number of people working in the financial sector in London has gone up uh, hugely. And a lot of it's because of the growth in fintech. And London has continued to be a great fintech center. I think they underestimated quite how tough it was to maybe grow that business. And I think the cost of each customer was probably too high as well. Getting it, and, and it just wasn't gaining the traction they wanted. Now, I'm not convinced it was because of Brexit. Now, have you seen any impact um, in the fintech growth in London and, and surrounding areas as a result of Brexit? Or is it, uh, you've mentioned that there's actually been an increase in activity? There's been an increase in activity. So I was up in Edinburgh the other day, and uh, they've now got 112 fintech companies. There are fintech companies in Leeds, in Manchester. I'm going to Cardiff on Monday, and I, and that's where there's amplifiers and other. I mean, they're just... There are a great many fintech companies around the whole of the UK, and it just seems to be something which is hugely, hugely positive. I mean, UK investment is up 38% year on year to a new record of $4.9 billion in 2019. So it's faster growth than the US, China and Singapore, maybe not in the big number, but the growth is, is still very strong. And seven out of the 10 largest deals across Europe in 2019 came out of the UK. We mentioned the investment in fintechs. And obviously, as we speak, we've gone through uh, a few weeks of uh, 
turmoil in the markets is probably the best way to say it, both up and down. But I, I think I know in my personal case, but in a lot of people's cases, based on market trends, there's been a what I'll call flight to safety. Yeah. And that could impact or probably will impact the investment level in fintech firms. And with most fintechs relying on outside funding as opposed to actual business revenues, what do you see as the potential impact in the UK and elsewhere with regard to the growth and investment in fintechs, given the fact that right now, because of various conditions, people seem to be at least flying to uh, safety? So having worked on the public markets, there is always a big difference between you know, what's quoted on the stock exchanges and what's private equity. So I'm not convinced there'll be, I mean, I think what's happening is around obviously coronavirus and yes, global growth is definitely going to go lower. But because of the trend of where fintech is, I'm not convinced that will necessarily change huge amounts of people's views on investing in fintech. I think if it was obviously travel, I mean, we know a few deals have already been pulled because of what's going on. Uh, anyone to do in the travel leisure sector. So from that perspective, you could argue having, you know, it's even more reason to sign up on one of these fintech accounts because you don't have to leave your house and go to the bank. So if anything, the banks with the branches, they're the ones that it's going to make people think, oh, I don't, why, why do I need to go to the bank? I can just do it on my phone. So people may sign up for more fintech companies. Than, and so it's probably a worse thing for the incumbents than it is for uh for fintech companies. Well, you know, it's interesting because we have seen uh, conference programs, you know, the, the office conference stocks have gone up and some of the digital entities have gone up. And it's it, we did a, a survey, to obviously, an informal survey on Twitter saying, do you think investment in, in fintech will go down significantly, go down moderately, stay the same or increase significantly? Interestingly, it was about a quarter-by-quarter split. So the lack of knowledge of knowing which way it's going to go, Sequoia just came out yesterday and said, I think that they say we see a possible pullback on investment in in VC right now. But every market change presents opportunities at the same time as it presents risk. So that may be short-lived, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, another item is that you recently visited the Middle East and discussed the importance of sustainability financial inclusion, and the importance of doing good within financial services. Do you see this as a performance gap for both legacy and fintech firms currently? Interesting. I mean, I think on one of my trips, funny enough, we had a fintech company called Goodbox. And Goodbox is it's more prevalent over here because we're more, more cashless than you are in America. But what's happening even now, if you, you know, you're on the street, someone who's homeless asks you for some money, a lot of people don't have any change in their pockets because it's the cash. It's a good box, has a box where you just tap in and let's say the minimum donation is three pounds and it collects the three pounds off you. So what's happening is there's something called the big issue that gets sold over here, which is homeless people selling a, a magazine called Big Issue and the money they, when they sell it the money they make, they keep. And now you'll find that a lot of those people have a good box. So you're paying for it. So you can see how that is beginning to change perceptions. But the other perception is, is I actually think the whole green finance and the sustainable finance area is where fintech was three years ago. I think we've got COP26. I went to Davos for the first time and probably the last time because I'm only Lord Mayor for a year. But those people have been to Davos uh, many times before said it was without a doubt the best Davos they'd ever been to because it was really focused on climate change. And there's a momentum 
in the climate change area that no one's ever seen before. There is genuine change. And I saw the news that came out or the comments from the CEO of ExxonMobil. I think he's missing the point. People aren't going to own ExxonMobil shares if ExxonMobil doesn't change. I know asset managers here who don't own ExxonMobil shares because ExxonMobil is not doing enough in the sustainable space. They're still investing all their cash flow into oil and gas fields. And you know what Larry Frink said at BlackRock was hugely significant. And what Mark Carney, the governor of Bank of England, is doing, working towards COP26, is hugely significant. And, you know, we're, we're at a new crossroads that we've never seen before. And I think that is game-changing. And by the way, just to make you feel better, America did agree to be part of the trillion trees they announced at the World Economic Forum. We'll see. Yeah, the political situation here is unique in that sometimes what we say on Monday is not going to be the same thing we say on Thursday, unfortunately. But when we look at the global aspect of fintech and financial services, you're starting to see the the beginning entry of some financial firms from China entering the the UK into Europe overall. Do you see this as a, a threat or an opportunity to what we'll call not just traditional, but the existing fintech uh, ecosystem in, in the UK? So the one that has really stuck out was the acquisition of World First by Ant Financial. And from what I've heard from that, I, I think that's very interesting. It's the technology that Ant Financial uses in China. As you know, China is, has some technology, in, particularly in fintech, which is very powerful. I think that's worked very well from what I've heard with World First. And think and financial, and you may be referring to this, just took a stake in uh, or Alibaba in Karma, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yep. So that uh, they, they are. I mean, they look at the ideas and they say, well, you know, we can buy into these because we like the idea and we can take that idea back. And as you know, China's got 1.3 billion people and uh, it's a huge market. So a lot of it's around the technology uh, that they can add into products, and that's what they've done with World First. And World First has gone more global, and and financial, it, I think it's worked very well for both parties. You can't keep change out. Um, it, it's going to come one way or the other. I was fortunate enough to visit Tencent China um, at the very, very beginning of uh, January, so before a lot of things changed over there. But we saw the the desire for companies like Tencent with their WeBank and, and other organizations wanting to move west. And the ability for them to use AI and data and digital technologies on an extraordinarily efficient basis – will push us all to realize that, you know, in the, U- the U.S. as well as the U.K., but especially in the U.S., that, you know, it's not your old, your, your old bank anymore. We've got to move forward because the financials alone dictate this. But um, no, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, you know, that's one of the exciting bits about it. But also, as you say, there's open banking and there's, and there's fintech. But fintech crosses over into green tech, green finance. And then you've got red tech, you've got insure tech, and it's all happening. And the main beneficiary, as you and I know, is you, you and myself as, as the consumer. Yeah. And, you know, finally, how do you see the collaboration between the U.S. and the U.K. possibly positively impacting the fintech community on a global basis? So I think it's going to have a huge effect because one of the biggest issues we have in the U.K. is that series A, B, and C. And this is where the US VCs are being very clever and they're, they're seeing opportunities over here to come into those funding rounds. And you saw it with Monzo, you've seen it with Revolut and take the UK fintech global 
and take it into America. And I think that that's where the collaboration, it's, it's a healthy collaboration. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, one of the things that uh, one, my theme is, you know, global UK trade, innovation and culture. And if I focus on that culture bit, and, and I've lived in New York and in Hong Kong, and I love those cities. But, you know, for me, London's the greatest city in the world. And we have culture, arts and heritage. And the talent wants to live here. Talent wants to come here. And that's one of the huge beneficiaries that we have. And the language. I mean, you and I speak the same language. And I think that helps a great deal with this US-UK collaboration. And when we were there in, um, in San Francisco, we were welcomed uh, with open arms. Everyone was interested. And there's been a huge amount of follow-up from both sides. And there are opportunities for co-investment from, you know, US VCs and UK working together. And that's starting to happen. And just today, one of the VCs we've met, I know, is in the city of London meeting uh, the people at Guildhall. And it's been great. And it, it was just the start. And I think it will continue. We have a, I know it sounds uh, cliched, but, you know, we do have a special relationship. And I don't think that's changing. Yeah. And I think, you know, the interesting part about this, and, and you've been in your role for a while, but certainly you've, it's not new space for you is that the one thing that we certainly can look at is the fact that every day the marketplace is changing. Um, it's changed for the better from the consumer perspective. It's actually changing for the better from the business perspective for those organizations that can adjust. We can't ignore what's going on, but I think it, you know there's great opportunities. And I think the debate over what's the fintech capital of the world is going to continue um, in a humorous way. And uh, we all bring up our own numbers, but I, I think what's interesting is it's not going to matter in the long term because in the long term, it's, it, it is a global economy and, and we all have to move forward quickly or else the consumers can be dissatisfied. Yeah, totally agree with you. You know, it's been a great time to speak with you. As I said, I traveled a little bit lately and and, and saw what your role was and, and was interested in how you were presenting the UK marketplace. And, you know, the, the marketplace continues to change and the opportunities are great. And I hope to be able to meet you in person at some point if I can. Well, if you're in London, let Joe know and we can say hi. I will. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. So some thoughts around the interview with the Lord Mayor William Russell. I think it's interesting in that, obviously, at least my perspective, the UK and London in particular has advanced quicker than the US with regard to the growth of fintechs, the transformation of the banking industry overall, and the response and the regulatory changes have, have really shown that open banking is a reality. Um, it's, a, it's a bit challenging that our regulators continue to fall behind further and further as the marketplace moves forward. I think another interesting aspect is that the economics of banking are changing quickly. Digital firms can do what traditional firms have done at a much lower cost operationally. In addition, they can expand globally with very little increase in cost. As we look at the UK and we look at the growth of their fintech groups and their movement to the US and also some of the fintech movements from the US to the UK, it is very clear that the competition that we see today is not going to be the competition we see tomorrow. This is not just in banking. This is in every industry because of digitalization and digital transformation. I think the last major point is it's going to be interesting to see how the investment in fintech changes with the marketplace, with the financial markets in turmoil. And whether or not that change, if it happens, 
will be temporarily or permanent based on the flight to safety or the flight to opportunity when the markets start to rebound. I think it's important to see also that the partnership between the UK and the US, as well as other areas globally, to be able to build a better banking ecosystem for the consumer cannot be ignored. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Rate is a top 10 banking podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. While it only will take a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of Banking Transformed to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. Finally, if you haven't already done so, be sure to register for the Financial Brand Forum being held from April 27th to 29th at the Aria Hotel in Las Vegas. Join me and more than 2,500 of your favorite bank and credit union executives to gain valuable insights from the likes of Seth Godin, Martha Stewart, Steve Young and Jerry Rice, Brett King, Omar Johnson, and dozens of other leaders who will share their perspectives during this amazing star-studded event. And be sure to arrive early to catch a private performance by Jay Leno on Sunday night. Go to forum2020.com and register today. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.